are there more doors in the world or more wills in the world? That's difficult. I would go doors because there are about six doors in my house, but I think I can only have one will. So I think doors probably win just on sheer volume. I think that's probably the the correct answer there, but I think that's only the, the short ability to have wills. I think people could have multiple doors, but not enough wills. You can have four wills on a car. I'm sitting on a desk right now. This desk is supported by five separate wills. Oh, wills on every there is wills on every Hot Wheels toy. There is this wheel- is difficult. Yeah. I forgot wheels on chairs count. I thought you were talking about like a car or a bicycle. Like I can That's only the have thing about this discussion. It just came to my attention the last couple of days. And it just kept me up at night thinking about this one. I'm going to go doors. I'm going to go doors. Official final answer. Going to go doors. You're going to go doors. He's a doors guy. I'm a wills guy. Slump Busters in the comments below if you're watching this on YouTube. Go ahead and draw. Do you think there are more doors in the world or do you think there are more wills? Other than that, let's get into our random sports fact of the week. Wow. Did you know that? Now live on the Slump Buster podcast, random sports fact of the week. This past Sunday, Jason Tatum had an outstanding game against the Brooklyn Nets. Huge victory for the Boston Celtics and a historic one for Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum is now tied with Kobe Bryant for the most 50-point games for a player under 25 years old. This also breaks Larry Bird's franchise record for 50-point games in general. Jason Tatum actually has six if you include his postseason 50-pointer against the Nets last year. Tatum and Kobe are tied for six behind Wilt. Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Kareem, and Rick Barry. The Slump Buster Podcast. The Slump Buster Podcast. The first quarter starts now. One of the NFL's biggest offseason questions is finally answered. Aaron Rodgers will indeed be staying in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Four years. $200 million. That's what took to all but ensure that the future Hall of Famer will end his career a Packer. In addition, Devontae Adams has been franchise tag setting up a last, last dance. Kyle Ledbetter, does this result surprise you? Yes and no. But with Aaron Rodgers, I had said the entire time with this situation that I don't know what Aaron Rodgers values. The best football decision was always to stay with the Packers, especially when his alternative options were like the Broncos and Raiders, which are not necessarily like pinnacles of franchise stability in the NFL uh, or even have good teams right now. Like the Raiders have a fine team. The Broncos have a team that now looks better with Russell Wilson. But if you took away Russell Wilson, and the team wasn't very good. The football option was always to stay in Green Bay, but Aaron Rodgers could have been posturing for more power and more of a say over a team that he was building or whatever it is Aaron Rodgers values. I'm not exactly sure. But if we're doing it from a pure football standpoint of Aaron Rodgers gets to pick the team that he wants to play for, then this makes the most football sense in the short term. Now, I'm surprised Aaron Rodgers signed the extension for reportedly $200 million. I know Rodgers said that that's not exactly true, but if Ian Rappaport's putting his name behind it, it's going to be somewhere in the ballpark, I imagine. So I would say that short term, it makes the most sense for Rodgers. The Packers are a stable organization. I know that they, they made the mistake of drafting Jordan Love and thinking Aaron Rodgers didn't have anything left in the tank, but I think that was more of like a contingency plan and forward thinking by the Packers. Like they've done an incredible job drafting, developing, hiring a new coach after Mike McCarthy. McCarthy got fired, who seems to be at least pretty good. Like, I don't know how good Matt LaFleur is actually as a coach. 
coach, but you know, seems to be a pretty stable coach who's yeah. you know learning the ropes. I mean, you don't lose back-to-back games in a three-year stretch. You're better than average at the coaching position. Yeah, even for a team as talented as the Packers, which I'd argue is like outside of maybe the Chiefs and the Bills or the 49ers also in that mix, like one of the most talented teams top to bottom in the NFL. They've built a really stable thing there and it always made the most football sense for Rodgers to stay. It's why it was so confusing last year when all the news broke that Aaron Rodgers wanted a trade out of Green Bay. We're like, you were just the one seed. You're not in cap purgatory yet. Like your, your team is actually like really good. Why would you want to leave? And so that led people to think that this is about more than football or whatever it is Aaron Rodgers prioritizes, which is not the most logical football move. So to that part, yes. To the other part, no, just because we had been given the impression that maybe Aaron Rodgers didn't value the best football decision for himself. That wasn't exactly what Aaron Rodgers prioritized most. It's not an indictment of Aaron Rodgers at all. Like Aaron Rodgers can value whatever Aaron Rodgers wants to value at 40 years old, realizing like Tom Brady did that he has the power to change entire organizations and make a lot of money and has like real NFL power. If he wanted to get more power within an organization that wasn't the Packers, that was obviously an option. I'm sure he talked to the Broncos and talked to the Raiders before making this decision or whatever Steelers or Titans or whatever other teams were in the mix there that were reported. Like, I don't know exactly what Aaron Rodgers values from like what he wants out of his career. But in the end, it ultimately was, this is the best football decision. I know where I am. I know the people here. I'm going through a difficult time in my life with a breakup and becoming a heel turn in the court of public opinion uh, and losing embarrassing playoff game that forces me to rethink where things stand in my career. He chose stability and I guess credit to him. He made the best football move in the end. I think it's also good for his legacy from this standpoint. He may have the opportunity to do something that Joe Montana didn't get to do, that Tom Brady didn't get to do, that Brett Favre didn't get to do and finish with the same franchise that drafted him. I think that there still is some meaning in that to some players. And certainly when we look back at the greats and we could just see them with that just one jersey. Now, Tom Brady's going to be an interesting case, of course, because he has the Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Bucks, which makes him just as much of a legend there as it does with the Patriots. But for Aaron Rodgers, just to just be synonymous with that golden green, yellow and green, whatever you kind of describe those colors as, as the Green Bay Packers, I think is a big legacy move for him. And obviously they financially rewarded him if this is a 200 million dollar deal then you talk about did he have conversations at all with the Raiders did he have conversations at all with the Broncos were they willing to also give him the extension that added I don't know 10 million a year that would have made him the highest paid quarterback in the league maybe the Packers were the only organization that were willing to do that and that's why it made it easier for him to make that decision What's going to be interesting from the Packers, because I kind of disagree with you that the Broncos would have been a step down talent wise. I think the Broncos do have some talented pieces just get overlooked because their quarterback play has been so bad. When you have Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Law throwing to Jerry Judy and Cortland Sutton, I think it makes the pieces look worse than they actually are. If Aaron Rodgers goes there, then suddenly those guys, who knows, maybe Jerry Judy's the next Devontae Adams. We always talk about his route running ability. It's just he didn't have the right quarterback to bring it out. So I think he could have made Denver a Super Bowl contending team. I think he could have made the Raiders a Super Bowl contending team because the Raiders were a 10-win team 
last year in the playoff picture last year. And Derek Carr, he's a fine quarterback, but he's obviously not Aaron Rodgers. So I, I think just the added addition there could have made the Raiders a Super Bowl contender. Obviously, they would have had to compete in the AFC West, which is a, a big thing for both those teams having to compete against Justin Herbert and Patrick Mahomes in a given year. I think also for the long-term legacy building standpoint of Aaron Rodgers, it doesn't hurt to be in the NFC North for the next four years. You get a pick on the Lions, you get a pick on the Vikings, the Bears, the franchise you own. That helps. I mean, we talk about Brady just mining the AFC East for wins for 20 years. Well, he gets to continue doing that in the NFC North, which looks like a division that's not getting much better. By virtue of winning the division for the next four years with Aaron Rodgers, assuming that the quarterback play just stays the same, you're going to be in the playoffs each and every year. And it's kind of like the Dodgers when the Dodgers kept going to the playoffs, kept going to the National League Championship Series. You just keep going there. Eventually, you're just going to break through at some point. As long as the Packers are still in that mix, especially in the NFC, because the NFC has so much parody over the last 20 years the nfc has had so many teams represent them in the super bowl in addition to the quarterback play now with rusk on not that it was ever questioned obviously he's a two-time mvp or a two-time returning mvp four-time mvp overall but he's clearly the best quarterback in the conference there's value to that just being the best quarterback in the conference you go to the afc and you're still good but you're probably top five you're not number one there's no quarterback addition on the horizon that's going to make any NFC team much better in the coming months, weeks, days that we know about unless Deshaun Watson moves. And even then, depending on where Deshaun Watson goes, his team's not going to be ready to compete on the same level that Aaron Rodgers and the Packers are going to be ready to compete. Add in Devontae Adams, he gets to keep his guy there at least one more year on a franchise tag. And the Packers seem like they're at least good this year. I kind of worry about them long-term from the standpoint of their roster just continuing to build around that. It's going to really come down to Brian Gutekunst continuing the draft well. I believe uh, his name is uh, Lil Goody, as the people are calling him continue to get guys like you talk about your love for aj dylan they have to continue cycling in guys and you mentioned the packers didn't make a terrible decision with the idea of going after jordan love because anyone that watched the 2019 season they could tell that there was some sort of regression something was off about aaron Rodgers that year don't know what it was don't know if it was all mental don't know if it was learning the lafleur playbook but something felt off so i don't blame them for trying to get that insurance policy there and a first round talent at quarterback how how good Jordan Love will ever be in the long run. It's just going to be one of those league-wide mysteries. Uh, what's in the mystery box? I don't know. Maybe it's Aaron Rodgers. Maybe it's, I don't know, Nick Hundley. <laughs> Oh, Nick Hundley, that's a that's a catcher from my glorious 2010 or, San Diego what, Padres team. Oh, I believe the Brett Hundley is Brett the person Hundley. You're looking for. Deshaun Kaiser. One of those types. Nate Hundley. Oh, that made me so happy. You saying Nate Hundley brought me back to childhood, going to watch him and Everett Cabrera playing for the 70-win San Diego Padres. Oh, that was such a great name. Nick Hundley was the seven-hitter playing catcher for the Padres. Oh, so great. So great. Um, to Aaron Rodgers' point, Aaron Rodgers, he, he buys himself brownie points with the Packers fans by being the legend guy. But I think Packers fans had kind of like mentally resigned to being like, if he stays, he stays if he goes he goes and now well, we talked about confusing. it this week right we, we talked about it this week with our, our guest on the slump buster dan kotnick that he even was a little bit mentally resigned we've seen packers fans in wisconsin literally make crybaby branded beer <laughs> talking about aaron Rodgers 
because they were so over it. And I don't blame them. You, you have a guy like Giannis Antetokounmpo in your state, who's the perfect team guy, model citizen. And then you have Aaron Rodgers, who's just blowing stuff up on seemingly the way out. Um, if you're a fan and you're just kind of like caught in the middle, you see obviously to Aaron Rodgers making himself the victim in every possible situation he can. It's hard to support the guy because you, you also see, it seems like he's talking down to you. Yeah, I, I can understand I, I, why I would be a little bit disconnected as a fan with Aaron Rodgers, aside from his play or lack of ability to bring home a Super Bowl to Green Bay. It's like, you know, when you're in a bad relationship and you're just kind of like hanging on to it at the very end, it's like, well, if it ends tomorrow, like I can live with it. But, you know, if we stay in this together, like I'll be happy in the relationship. Yeah, and I think the thing that's changed now is that I will say that athletes are not idolized in the same way that they used to be back in the 1980s and 90s. So I don't think Packers fans necessarily are like, we are now riding all the way with Aaron Rodgers. I don't think that was ever kind of the case, but I think it's just a healthier relationship between sports fans and sports teams. And it's not super relevant. Like it's a, it's a bonus point for Rogers. Rogers buys that with Packers fans just a little bit. I'm not sure like it makes that much of a difference, but I don't think it's swayed into Aaron Rodgers' decision-making very I would say with that one, when you think about for the Packers fans that still grew up with Brett Favre, if you didn't have Aaron Rodgers over Brett Favre already, I think it at least puts Aaron Rodgers a tier above him in the sense that, again, he's going to be able to finish his career as a Packer. All indications, because I, I think by the end of this four years, I don't see Aaron Rodgers re-upping for another year or wanting to play for another team. Aaron Rodgers already talked about retirement the last two seasons. So by the end of this four years, when he's going to be, what, 42 I think he'll be ready to step away from the game. How I would think even potentially after the third season, he might be ready to step away from the game. I think he turns 40 next year. So I think Aaron Rodgers is staying down like he might be 43, 44 by the time all of this is done. Does like, he finish I, his four years on this contract? Probably just because I don't think he has the leverage to get out of Green Bay after that. So no, I, no, I but think like, he, does he retire? If, you know, I mean, Oh, Tom Brady retired with a season left to go on his contract. Yeah. I th- oh, of course. Yeah. Cause he's not going to come up on, if he becomes a free agent, he's going to be like, well, I have a chance to, the reason a lot of people retire is because they, they kind of lose love in the situation that they're in Ben Roethlisberger case in point, like it was the end of the road for Ben. No one was going to sign him as a starter. So it was just, you know, it was time for Ben to walk away. And most people don't get to have the magical retirement that Tom Brady had. Like very few people get to go out on, their own terms. Aaron Rodgers was going to have a situation like that with a contract dispute possibly. And, you know, he's going to be the Packers quarterback. I will say to the Jordan Love point, good on the Packers for not like wallowing in their mistake, like recognize it's a mistake, pivot. It's going to be okay. Like good on them for that. I mean, people bust on first round picks all the time. Busting on first round quarterback when you don't even have to start him, I I think is one that you can recover from easily. Look at the Chargers, Kenneth Murray, they can't even play him in games. And he was supposed to be a full-time starter for them they drafted Jordan Love as insurance it turned out he didn't have to start and it's probably for the better that he didn't have to start if you don't have to start a quarterback you drafted I think that's actually a good thing because that says that you have the guy already in place vindicates the decision to keep Aaron Rodgers in the first place to not just oust him as soon as you drafted Jordan Love it was a good strategy and now they need to trade Jordan Love. They, they don't wait to trade Jordan Love. Trade Jordan Love now is the, the strategy the Packers should be implementing. You don't think that they could mine a little bit of value in the same way that the Patriots were able to get more for Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, more relatively because Bill Bowcheck took a lesser deal, more for Jimmy Garoppolo by having him be this unknown that was sitting on the bench behind Tom Brady. Now that Aaron Rodgers is 
more secure in his contract. Hell, he might be more open to embracing Jordan Love, don't you think? I think that Jordan Love is not going to move significantly more or less on value. Whether Jordan Love becomes great or not will decide whether it was a good deal or a bad deal, right? Like no one is really going to be swayed unless Love plays significant amounts of games. I will say this, since it is a bad quarterback draft, there might be some value in it this season. Because aside from Malik Willis, there hasn't been a lot of love for these rookie quarterbacks. So Jordan Love might be more appealing if you had him high in your evaluation two years ago. And if you still have him higher than all these other quarterbacks that are in the draft. Uh, So that's where Jordan Love might have value in trading him this season. You're probably looking at, if I'm making a trade today, I'm probably starting with Jordan Love as a fourth round pick. Jordan loves getting the same package Carson Wentz got. That's the way I would I see it. Think, like no, multiple I day trade, two I would not picks. trade multiple picks. I'm trading him like for a fourth. It's yep. it's probably multiple day two picks for Jordan Love. And conditional. I think I, I would maybe add a conditional pick if I'm doing this. I mean, Sam Darnold trade didn't turn out well, but that was for a second and a fifth. Rosen was for a second and a fifth. That's kind of the purgatory that Jordan Love finds himself in. Maybe teams have gotten smarter about those moves, but there's got to be a desperate sucker out there. Who, who's a desperate <laughs> sucker who needs a quarterback? Part of the problem uh, too, I compare Jordan Love to Jimmy Garoppolo. Jimmy Garoppolo at least got to play in that season where Tom Brady got suspended. And that's despite true. him getting injured, he upped his value. Jordan Love has gotten to play because of, you know, of course, Aaron Rodgers being immunized and he did not up his value in those games he did not up his but it was only minimal last, right like yeah, but he didn't up yeah. his value last game against the lions when they lose that you're thinking okay this is your opportunity to shine kid you know just go out there and show that you can be a competent nfl quarterback and jordan love really didn't do that uh whereas jimmy grapple was out there leading game winning drives against the cardinals on prime time but again, if people thought Jordan Love would be a competent NFL quarterback, they would have they, they'd be lining up to trade first round picks right now. So I think that this is all relative in the fa- fact that you no one really, really loves Jordan Love. You really anymore. want someone that was high on him a couple years ago. And the evaluation can change. But yeah, there, there, there was definitely some teams that gave him a first round grade. And that's why the Packers were in such a desperation to trade up and grab him before any of those teams on the back half of the draft could. Talk to some of those teams and see if they're still interested in doing that. You mentioned the Saints. The Saints might make a lot of sense because they're talking about bringing back Jameis coming off the ACL injury. Jameis, last year, the offense looked like it was fighting itself. They were trying to fight the instincts of Jameis Winston the entire time he was healthy, and we never got to see the best versions of both the Saints offense or the best versions of Jameis because of it. Put him in a situation where he has the opportunity to compete for the job because I don't think you bring in Jameis into camp next season and just say you're the starter. I think you need a little competition when you have a quarterback on that level. So I I think maybe that is probably the best situation. But again, I'm probably topping out at a fourth, even looking at the quarterback trades that we've gone to this point and if i am going to throw in an extra pick if i'm going to throw in a little sweetener it has to be like a conditional pick fair enough they aren't going to get what they gave up for jordan love in the first place he hasn't increased his value over the last two years the saints is fun to me because they're not going to be great the saints are going to be fine they're going yeah, to they're going to be an okay still, team this defense is still good the defense will still but be they good. still have Dennis alvin Allen Kamara and michael thomas they got like they'll, they'll be fine yeah they'll be fine yes you have decent quarterback play with that offense 
offensive line, that defense, those two skill position players, you should be fine, especially when you look at the landscape of the NFC South with a Brady-less Bucks team, a Panthers team, and then, you know, just the Falcons. <laughs> I'm we'll glad you the mentioned Falcons. them because um, yeah, it'd be we'll- better than sending Jordan Love to the Panthers, right? It'd be better to send them to the Saints than the Panthers giving up a second and third round pick because they're going to trade for a quarterback every single year. I guess the question is in two years when the Packers have to do it all over again and talk about prospects to replace Aaron Rodgers, are we going to see the same level of drama? Let's hope not. No, but if you're the Packers, you have to be thinking that's on your mind. These guys are on fire. Let's hear more. Second quarter starts now. Following the 2020 season, things in Seattle started to get a little bit weird. Russell Wilson stopped being the happy, go-lucky, quiet, go-hawks face of the franchise we've grown accustomed with. Even having his agent publicly release a short list of teams he would be open to getting traded to. In 2021, a couple firsts happened since the inception of the Wilson era in Seattle. Firstly, Wilson had never missed time, and ligament damage in his hand uh, caused Russ to miss three games in the 2021 season. Secondly, a Wilson-led Seahawks team had never had a losing season. The Seahawks were the only NFC West team to miss the playoffs with a 7-10 and record. Now, after that disappointing season, Russell Wilson will no longer be the Seattle Seahawks starting quarterback. Joining us to talk the fallout, the only Seahawks fan that we have an open-door policy with at the Slump Buster, Steezy A. Smith, <laughs> Kelvin Domingo. Steezy, how you hanging in there today, man? You know, I'm definitely feeling a lot better than I did yesterday. I don't know if you guys caught my live stream yesterday, but at the top of the show, I was talking about how I woke up to the news. I think it was around 8 o'clock a.m. Pacific time. That was when I fell asleep. And then I woke up three hours later around 11.30 a.m. Pacific time, and my phone literally blown up. You know, texts, phone calls, uh, tweets, Instagram messages, calls, everything. And I was just like, what is going on? And then I'm seeing breaking news from, you know, Bleacher Report, ESPN, Fox Sports, and I'm just like, wait, Russell Wilson was just traded? Um, I was heartbroken. I stayed in bed for I don't know how long. And I had a hard time just being able to process everything. And then my show comes around. And at the top of the show, Bobby Wagner gets released. And so I'm just like, literally, I I was speechless. You know, my jaw just dropped. And I was just like, you know what? (sighs) We had a good run. You know, we had a good run. But sometimes you got to take a couple steps backward to eventually move forward. You talked about taking a couple steps backward. Obviously, this is going to start a full-scale rebuild. So luckily, the Seahawks did get a package back. They got in a package that included Noah Fant, Drew Locke, multiple first, multiple seconds. They traded away a fourth back in this deal. Did they get enough to really kickstart the rebuild there in Seattle? I know I'm going to sound crazy, but me personally, no. And the only reason why I'm saying no is because I'm not saying Denver should have added another first-round pick or two. For me, when I look at the combination of players that came in, Drew Locke, Shelby Harris, Noah Fant, none of these guys look like stars. You know, why couldn't we attain a Bradley Chubb? Why couldn't we get a pass with him? Both guys fill not only needs for my Seahawks, but they're also, they also play premium positions, cornerback, uh, outside linebacker slash pass rusher. And I think with Seattle, while they've made a, a ton of trades in the past, you know, and acquiring Jamal Adams, Jimmy Graham, Parsi Harvin, Jadavian Clowney, they never really traded for a guy who plays a premium position. Jadavian Clowney, yes, he's a pass rusher, but he's not any team's number one pass rusher. So Seattle has always had an issue bringing in premium talent via trade. And so now to me, I find it very ironic that when we do, you know, send out a Russell Wilson, we don't acquire any premium positions. We don't acquire any you know, potential stars. Yes, the first round pick is going to help, 
But this is a weaker class and a lot of people would like to give her credit for. And so, especially at a quarterback. And so only in that regard would I say Seattle didn't get enough. But aside from that, I mean, it's a measure haul, nevertheless. Two first-round picks, two second-round picks, a fifth. I guess if I have another gripe about it, why did we have to trade a fourth-round pick? I mean, we didn't have too many draft picks to begin with this year. And we did. We are the ones giving away the franchise quarterback, who I still believe is a top-five quarterback in football. So why do we have to give up a fourth-rounder? We're kind of splitting hairs with that, but uh, those are my only real two concerns with the trade package that came in. All right, I want to ask you a little bit about the Russell Wilson side of it because Russell Wilson – quietly-ish orchestrated this behind the scenes. The Seahawks didn't want to trade him. Russell Wilson ended up getting his way out. We usually don't see this from the star quarterback type who, you know, in his 30s, switches teams, usually in a big trade package also is is more interesting. He's, you know, he's the guy in Seattle, I suppose. So how do you feel about how Russell Wilson made out in this situation when he gets out of Seattle and handpicks Denver? You know, there were reports that I saw earlier this morning that talked about how Russell Wilson felt like his legacy was being damaged. You know, he felt like Pete Carroll was kind of holding him back and this dynamic between, you know, what he wants and what Pete Carroll wants. You know, these guys are two alphas clashing. And so I'm, I can't blame Russell Wilson for wanting out, especially because for so many years now, he's tried to, to convince Pete, you know, and, and the whole football team, honestly, that, yo, you know, if this is truly my team, like, let me, let the offense run through me. Let me have some say in the offense. I'm not saying, oh, it's it's full-blown, give the keys to Russ, let Russ cook, Russ this, Russ this, Russ that, Russ this. I'm just saying he probably didn't feel like he was as involved as he would like. And I just feel like, yo, last offseason, he put out a, a list of four teams that he'd accept the trade to. That's the same as if I had a girl and she listed four dudes that she would – you know, get with if she were to break up with me. And so it's like, you know, she he's she's flirting, she's entertaining teams, entertaining other guys. And it's like, for me, I start to see the writing on the wall. You know, I was on record saying that if Russell Wilson was not going to leave this offseason, he was a goner next offseason unless Seattle wins the Super Bowl. Obviously, that's completely out of the room possibility. And uh, he ended up moving on this offseason. So it was inevitable. I'm just glad that we have to suffer now just because that suffering isn't going to last forever. So it definitely seems like there is going to be some suffering in 2022, possibly 2023, possibly 2024. This is going to be a big time rebuild in Seattle. Hell, you not only got rid of Russ, but you talked about Bobby Wagner leaving. So the last piece of that Seattle Super Bowl team is gone. Is this going to be the only trades that Seattle makes? Is there some more possible moves they can make to make this roster better? or acquire more assets to jumpstart the next Seattle era in the NFC West? Oh, this cannot, this cannot, I repeat, this cannot be the final trade, uh, at least this offseason, just because knowing Pete Carroll, dude is the oldest head coach in the league. He's 71 years old, and he's not going to want to stick around for a full-blown rebuild. Who knows how long that's going to take? Julian, you talked about it, it might t- it might go into 2022, 2023, 2024. We're talking three to four years. This man is 71 years old. He's running on a different time. You know, he's not out here going to withstand a rebuild. I, I think that this is more of a, a reboot, a retooling. Um, there's been rumors that hopefully once Deshaun Watson is able to kind of gain some clarity on his legal situation, maybe the Deshaun Watson part comes into play. Maybe there's another quarterback that becomes available. No, maybe Seattle opts to tank this year because we did acquire Drew Locke. So Drew Locke is definitely going to help in Seattle having one of the worst records in the league. But when you look at next year's draft class, we're talking Bryce Young. We're talking CJ Shroud. 
And Seattle has two first round picks in next year's draft. So let's say we rebuild and tank for one year and we do have 50 plus million in cap space this offseason. So maybe we want to address offensive line. Maybe we want to address running back. Maybe we want to address, you know, more depth in the secondary linebackers. Guys won't really make a huge impact when it comes to winning, especially with the Drew Lock at quarterback. And so if we're if we're going to rebuild, I think it only lasts one year because after this year, Seattle's either going to make a move in the draft or with the top five, top three, maybe even the first overall pick. Maybe they trade that for an established or star quarterback next offseason. It was the move for Pete Carroll to kind of wait it out with this contract extension because we know that uh, Schneider's under contract for eight years. Pete Carroll's supposed to be under contract for like four more years. Is this a... Um, I want to be here and see the fruits of the labor or is like a year from now, Pete Carroll going to surprise retire. What do you think the situation is there? No, I I don't see that happening. Um, I don't see him staying the entire duration of his contract, but I think Pete Carroll owes Seattle a Super Bowl. I incorrectly (laughs) said this yesterday on my show, but I talked about how I initially felt that Russ Wilson owed us a Super Bowl, at least another Super Bowl. But then I kind of came to my senses, you know, I kind of had a couple of people you know, telling me that, no, it's actually Pete because Pete was the one, I know Russell was the one who threw the pick, but Pete was the one who made the call. He was the one who who kind of gave and signed off on that pass, that ill-fated pass at the one-yard line, Super Bowl 49. And so because there is still kind of that, that cinch that has kind of lingered since then, yes, he can't retire, not yet. And especially not after trading Russell Wilson, like you're going to go out like that. If you're going to trade Russell Wilson, you might as well retire after trading Russell Wilson. And so I don't I don't envision a scenario in which he retires by next year unless, for whatever reason, Seattle wins the Super Bowl either this year or next, and maybe he wants to ride off into the sunset. But again, that's highly unlikely. So that's kind of where I stand on that. Uh, you mentioned this can't be the only trade. You have quality pieces like DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett. Who's untouchable? Is anyone untouchable in this situation? At this point, nobody. I hate to say it. But I think the only person who's untouchable, the only person who's safe in Seattle is Pete Carroll. Heck, not even John Schneider is safe. Just because Pete Carroll, at the end of the day, yes, he's the head coach, but he's also the executive vice president of football operations. He has final say over all personnel matters. And yes, that includes John Schneider. A lot of people, they don't take that into account or they kind of miss the fact that while John Schneider is the acting GM, he doesn't have final say over any sort of roster or personnel decisions. And so Pete Carroll is the only untouchable. I don't think DK is untouchable. I don't think Tyler Lockett's untouchable. Heck, there were even reports yesterday that Seattle was open to potentially moving to Tyler Lockett. Um, and while DK is young enough to anchor and be a part of a rebuild, we don't know if he's going to want to stick around if there's no quarterback. You know, DK, just like Russ, is also about legacy. And so if he's going to spend the next who knows however many years of his career in Seattle without knowing that there's going to be a quarterback coming. Why would he want to sign an extension now? So I don't think anyone's in touch about Pete Carroll. All right. Last question I got to ask you is just less so about the torment of Russell Wilson and the Seahawks and more so torment about Bobby Wagner because Bobby Wagner is maybe a Hall of Famer and they just up and cut him yesterday. Like they, they did all of the pain in one day for Seahawks fans, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people were talking about oh, why couldn't Seattle recoup, you know, at least a day three draft pick? Well, I'll tell you what, Bobby Wagner has the highest cap hit amongst all inside linebackers at over 20.35 million. Entering the season, he'll be 32. And yes, while he had 170 tackles last year, if you watch Bobby Wagner play in the last couple of years, you will notice somewhat of a decline, somewhat of a, of a slip in play. And maybe some of that does have to do with scheme. I know Seattle 
notoriously has been playing so much soft zone. I mean, you, of course they're going to give up a, a plethora of yards, but I'm not even pointing to that. I, I just think athletically, I think when it comes to, you know, his, his makeup, uh, physically, he's not as fast as he once was. He's not as quick as he once was. He's not able to keep up with some of these shiftier, quicker slot receivers. And so he's definitely taking a step back in that regard. I still think when it comes to stopping the run, when it comes to blitzing the, uh, the quarterback at the inside linebacker position, he's still top five. But as it pertains to coverage and some of the other nuances of the game, he's definitely taking a step back. And so on top of that, um, with the cap hit and everything, there just wasn't a team willing to trade for all that. Well, Tuesday, March 8th, 2022 is going to be a day that just lives in infamy for every Seattle Seahawks fan. Forever will be known as Black Tuesday for the franchise. Uh, I can't wait until I get to see Bobby Wagner in some red and gold. But thank you again, Steezy. Appreciate you for joining us here today. Let the people know where they can find all your quality content, man. Hey, Julian, thank you so much um, for having me on, you guys. Uh, this was a pleasure. This was fun. And I, I don't know if, you know, if you're a guy over there is a 49er fan, but you guys have Fred Warner. You know, you don't need Bobby. Like, nah, you know, I want to see him in the AFC. He's a hater. <laughs> he's a hater. I just, I hate everyone. I, I'm a bitter, beaten, former San Diego Charger fan. I just hate everyone uh, and everything. That's pretty so much he, my thing. Okay, so he, he just a little salty. Okay, that's that's I get it. It's all right. It's all right. Hey, but look, I, my Seahawks they're definitely in the worst position. I don't know if you're still rooting for the Chargers, but I definitely wouldn't put it past us if we were to get the number one overall pick next year, just because things could go you know that bad. But again, you know, thank you guys so much for having me on. For those of you guys that are tuned in at the Slump Buster Podcast, please subscribe, leave a like, drop a comment, tell a friend to tell a friend, all that good stuff. Um, and once you go do that, then as always, you can find me uh, primarily on YouTube, S-T-Z-A Smith, S-T-E-E-Z-Y-A-S-M-I-T-H. Been trying to grow my following on Twitter and Instagram as well. So if you guys can get at me on there, I greatly appreciate it. Uh, nothing but gratitude, though, fellas. Thank you. Breaking news. All right, Slumpusters, big time breaking news just now, literally as we're hitting the record button. Carson Wentz has been traded to the Washington football team with the Washington commanders, whatever you choose to call them, that Washington franchise just traded for Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz returning to the NFC East. Can't wait for those Eagles matchups. So those will be fun. I will start by saying that. Those will be fun times to see Washington versus the Eagles. A little more intrigue on that game this season. Not shocked based on the recent reports that Chris Ballard and Frank Wright kind of soured on Carson Wentz. And it seems like Jim Ursay, the owner, held week 18 against Carson Wentz the most. Makes sense when you're paying a guy like $28 million to lose to the Jacksonville Jaguars in week 18. You don't feel good about that transaction. You don't feel like you really got your bang for your buck. Hell, you have a running back who's playing on an MVP level. You have a solid defense. And we'll see what happens now that Eberflus is gone. And you have good skill position players outside of that with like Michael Pitt. Pittman, Jack Doyle, T.Y. Hilton still hanging around. Your quarterback that you traded for, you traded draft assets for, can't beat the Jacksonville Jaguars in week 18. What's he going to do in Washington? What is this Carson Wentz experience going to lead to next, Kyle? Yeah, the Carson Wentz experience is exactly what this is. We have a term for this on our podcast, which is called the Carson Wentz experience. Uh, our buddy Steezy A. Smith made a great point off air after because we were, we were recording with him when the news broke live. Um, he made a great point, which was that Carson Wentz is an upgrade for the Washington football team. And then I would argue that it doesn't do enough to significantly change the state of the Washington football franchise. Now, in fairness, the NFC does not have seven good teams. There are not seven good teams in the NFC. So Washington I don't think the can... NFC East has one good team. <laughs> 
you are low on the Dallas Cowboys. I don't, I don't understand this one. Like Dallas is such a good team. I, I don't understand the slander of the Cowboys. That hasn't been to an NFC championship game in like 30 years that lost their first round matchup to my San Francisco 49ers that is going to be cutting their wide receiver one who has great rapport with Dak Prescott, maybe cutting their top pass rusher into Marcus Lawrence as well, as they're asking their franchise quarterback to take a pay cut a mere season after extending him. The Cowboys, they have a whole separate cap hell situation that we'll talk about on a future episode. But in terms of that division, I mean, look at the NFC East, the parity over the last 20 years, the fact that there hasn't been a repeat champion in that division, I I think is not a nothing stat. And on any given year, Washington can win the division. The question I have with it is how much of an improvement is Carson Wentz over Taylor Heineke? Now, I will concede, I think he's an improvement. I don't think Taylor Heineke is better than Carson Wentz, folks. I will never say that. But I will say on any given week, Carson Wentz can be Taylor Heineke. Any given week, too, Carson Wentz can be Justin Herbert. But for the majority of his time, that roller coaster, that experience of Carson Wentz is what's buried the Eagles in the latter half of his time there and what's buried the Colts from making the playoffs. The Colts were a sure thing to make the playoffs. We talked about those last four weeks. We talked about what the Colts needed to do. They did the hard part. They beat the Cardinals. They beat the Patriots, but they couldn't beat the Jaguars at the end. They couldn't beat the Raiders who were a playoff team in the grand scheme of things. Their offense was towards the end, really lackluster. But the only thing that was worse than the Raiders offense was the Colts offense at the very end. Carson Wentz, those last two games, you look at it like his QBR, you look at the touchdown interception ratio, all bad, 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 backup level bad. And I can understand where if you're the Colts, your ownership, you're like, man, we have this Ferrari of a team. We have this roster that could compete for a Super Bowl if we just had better quarterback play, or at least if we just had non-stupid quarterback play. Not calling Carson <laughs> Wentz stupid, but you know we've seen some of his plays that dumb. Do. I think dumb is a nicer way to do it instead nicer, of calling him stupid. Nicer, you know, like war gymnastics to try and make it sound nicer, but sure, dumb yeah. quarterback play. We all saw the left-handed pass that got turned into a pick six. We all seen him just try and do that play multiple times throughout the season. You look at how the Colts pivot off the situation. They're talking Jimmy Garoppolo, and I don't hate it. I don't know if Jimmy Garoppolo is a legitimate upgrade over Carson Wentz. They're about the same tier of quarterback, but I've seen Jimmy in big spots versus Carson in big spots. Say what you want about Jimmy. He's gotten a team to the NFC Championship game twice in three years. Got a team to a Super Bowl and was seven minutes away from winning said Super Bowl. You give him the playbook. You give him the roster. You give him a running game. Jimmy Garoppolo is going to win you games. Carson Wentz, I don't know if you can say the, the same thing. Oh, good, sir. As, as Mina Kimes will tell you, and as all football people will tell you, wins are not a quarterback you know, stat. Here's what I'll say to Mina Kimes. Tell me that now that you don't have a quarterback. It's easy to say wins aren't a quarterback stat when you, give her you don't have a quarterback. So enjoy no, that wins. One, quarterbacks enjoy are conducive. One, I'm talking Quar- directly into no. the camera. I'm talking to you. I tweeted at you yesterday. Get back at me. <laughs> no, no. Win- good quarterback play is conducive to wins, but the win and loss records of quarterback quarterbacks is not a stat that should be ever held for or it, against it's a the large enough sample size which i have for jimmy Garoppolo. i have multiple seasons and the record hasn't shifted the record is still at least you give him a running game you give him a defense he's going to do enough to win you games he's not going to make plays that make it impossible for you to win games carson wentz was making enough bad plays that made it tougher for you to win games that's the difference on these quarterbacks that's the difference on one to two wins throughout the season i know jimmy Garoppolo can't make that 
that wow throw. Everyone talks about, can he make that wow throw, that outside the numbers deep ball? Probably not. But Jimmy Garoppolo is going to put together four or five throws throughout the game that helps you win the game. So the fact that he had more passing yards in the second half against the Green Bay Packers than Aaron Rodgers did in that same game, I think is a very telling stat. Like he just does just enough to put it in your playmaker's hands. And I think if you're Frank Reich, you got to love that. You got to love someone that's just not going to just tank your plays on any given Sunday. Well, I think that's why, other than financial reasons, I think that's why they moved on from Carson Wentz. Because I was shocked when I heard that they were trying to get rid of Carson Wentz. I'm like, but you're not going to find anyone better than Carson Wentz available unless Russell Wilson chooses to play for yeah. your team. You know what? I, I should mention it too here. Uh, two third round picks. That was the official trade package that went through. Did you which, think that, which, that was fair trade way, value for him? Uh, it's fair given that uh, it's reported also also just found out Carson Wentz is turning 30 this year, which is shocking to me because I remember him wait, being wait, drafted. Wait. That does not make him only like a couple years younger than Matthew Stafford. Yep, that is correct. It is really weird. I didn't realize Carson was that old, but Ow. at the same time. <laughs> I, I know, right? It's like finding out that Trent Richardson's only 32 years old. Carson Wentz, by the way, also, before I get too far down the road to the Washington side of things, uh, evaluating quarterbacks by wins and losses is the same thing as evaluating wide receivers by their rushing numbers. It tells you some of their statistics, but it's mostly a product of the team around them, the types of plays that they call. It's like judging how good a wide receiver is by how many rushing yards the wide receiver has. Like Devo Samuel has a lot of rushing yards, but Devo Samuel's not the best wide receiver in the NFL. Him having rushing yards is conducive to the, him being a good wide receiver, but it doesn't have anything to do with that. I would counter that. that just because you look at the best teams in the league, it's noticeable when you're missing talent at the quarterback position. You you feel it. It's palpable. Uh, it's Nick not, Mullen, yes, it, Nick it, Mullen in fairness, and CJ yes. Beathard versus Jimmy Garoppolo makes me put a little bit more credence into that statistic. It's not that all quarterbacks are the same. It, it's not a relevant stat to evaluating quarterback play. But anyways, I can I can talk about this for a while. The Washington side of things. Washington's just doing this because they need a quarterback. I was interested that they took on all 28 million of Carson Wentz because essentially what that is, is we value Carson Wentz, the $28 million plus the two day two picks more than we value a rookie in this year's class. We think that Carson Wentz is a better option than any of the rookie quarterbacks because Washington has the 11 pick. They can technically take any quarterback they want because we assume none of the quarterbacks are going to get taken in the top 10. They valued Carson Wentz more than they valued anyone in this year's draft class, which time will tell on that one. Washington isn't necessarily the organization that you put the most trust in, but I think what Washington did was they basically went down a list and said, we're going to call on Patrick Mahomes. We're going to call on Josh Allen, Russell Wilson. They're not allowed to trade for Deshaun Watson given what's happening to their organization. Yeah, the NFL would say optics. no. Yeah, that, that's probably not the ideal situation. But even still, even still, they just like went down the line and were like, okay, I guess Carson is the best we can do. I thought Jimmy would have made sense for them, but this is about the same. Jimmy and Carson is exactly the same for you that. I wonder, kind of wonder from this perspective, Kyle Shanahan obviously has no love for the Washington franchise. Could it it'd be entirely possible they call the 49ers? Hey, you want to trade us, Jimmy? No, bye. I could argue that trading Jimmy to Washington would be more of a punishment for Washington than not getting Jimmy, but that's a that's a conversation for another day. Is that Washington's just going to be stuck in this weird seven and ten purgatory of quarterback play? And they do have Chase Young, so I guess that they have enough talent to not be terrible. Like Washington has stable enough as a team, but Washington is not a playoff team, but they might make the playoffs just because the NFC is not that good. Well, you look at what our friend Steezy also 
also said off air about Washington, what was their big downfall last year? They were a playoff team a couple years ago, and then they regressed all because that defense wasn't up to snuff. That defense was a bottom five defense last year, even with Chase Young, even with Montez Sweat. What was the reason behind that? Can they fix that? Can they adjust? I mean, Ron Rivera always hangs his hat on being a defensive coach. Can they fix that defense? If they fix that defense and could get serviceable quarterback play from Carson Wentz, I mean, this is similar to what the Colts were saying. If they could get serviceable quarterback play from Carson Wentz with a good defense, you should make the playoffs. Yeah, Let's yeah. do an experiment here. Let's hedge our bets and say they're probably going to be somewhere in the middle defensively next year. If we hedge our bet and say they're not going to be one of the bottom five defenses, but they're not going to be one of the top five defenses, like getting Chase Young back will make them a better defense and they'll be somewhere in the middle. If they're somewhere in the middle there and they still have a bottom 10 offense, because I don't think Carson Wentz to Taylor Heineke is enough to have them jump from being 28th in offense to being, you know, top 15. 15 in the league. Maybe it will be, but I'd say like less likely that puts them in the 20 to 15 camp offense, like defensive 15th offensive in the twenties, which by the way, was about what the Cincinnati Bengals were last year. The Bengals just happened to catch a bunch of good breaks and make it to the Super Bowl. So I think they're probably in that group of teams that they're not tanking. They're not elite. They're in the mix somewhere in there. I would say that Washington is not significantly different today than they were yesterday. They're better, but not significantly different. It probably makes them a wild card competing team or a fringe wild card competing team. I, again, I can argue that I think they can win the division just because I think the division is more open than you think it is, but they can be around that range. It's because, I mean, how you look last year, we didn't think the NFC East was going to send two teams. They ended up sending the Eagles just because the Eagles got a scheduling break. No, no, Eagles don't be, count. The Eagles yeah, but don't count. Can Washington count. be this year's seven seed <laughs> that just makes it to the playoffs and get blown out by 50? They absolutely can be that team. That is 100% in the range of possibilities because they're going to get a third place schedule this year, which could be conducive to success. Uh, they're going to get Chase Young back off of ACL injury. You know, they're going to be better. They're, and they're not going to be going the opposite direction because of this trade. It, it's just going to be come down to Carson Wentz. You know, he needs to up his play and he needs to be healthy. That's another big elephant in the room when it comes to Carson Wentz, you know, his health issues. He went into Indianapolis last year and immediately sprains both ankles. That's a hundred percent part of <laughs> But he did equation. play all 16, or no, except the one that they think he might've had COVID. He did play all 16 games, True. I think. You know, that's another big part of that too. Obviously you asked about like his, responsibility it's team next year we're not going to have to worry about COVID policies the NFL's already announced that but you look at his ability to take accountability as a quarterback his leadership skills there's just a lot of things that you don't like about Carson Wentz and you kind of wonder why is it that the Colts would sour on so much I mean Frank Wright right this is the guy that vouched for him this is the guy that shared the same favorite bible verse with him why why did they <laughs> kind of like come to an odds over this last year I, th why I think it was financial I think it was financial, it financial I, I think but it sounds like there was legitimate disdain in the organization for Carson Wentz that I, I don't think he's the same guy that he was whenever Frank Reich and him were together in that pseudo MVP year. I think Carson has changed. You question his mental toughness. Can you also have him come into camp and just be the bona fide starter? I feel like you almost have to be just because of who Carson Wentz is. He's a guy that's shown that he crumbles under competition. I mean, they bring in Jalen Hurts, they draft Jalen Hurts that year, and suddenly he just can't get over himself, you know, to the point where he eventually gets benched. Yeah. I As think there's someone a mental who toughness, said there's a physical toughness element when it comes to Carson Wentz. And he's lacking in both. As someone who said in the year 2020 that Carson Wentz was still an elite quarterback in the NFL and deserved every penny of the contract that he got, uh, I, have, I have since pivoted on that. But as someone who recently said that, Carson Wentz 
benefited from being healthier, younger, and having the greatest offensive line ever assembled in the history of the NFL in 2017. And all of those things together helped make him an MVP candidate. Now he's slightly less healthy, doesn't have as strong of an offensive line. At least he didn't with the Eagles. They still have a pretty good one with the Colts. I will say he, he looked better behind the Colts offensive line. Um, and he's just older now. Like Carson Wentz is just an older quarterback who, you know, at the very beginning, maybe was a quarterback who is a seven to 10 year starter in the NFL. He's probably still that at this point. He's now in year seven, I think. So as new quarterbacks enter the league, Carson Wentz becomes a less desirable option because I think his best football is probably behind him at this point. Or this is, I, I think this is probably the closest version of Carson Wentz as we know, but he's just a he's such a random quarterback. And it's why he's kind of in quarterback purgatory, which is kind of what the Colts have been in for three years for no, now and they're going to continue for the fourth year in a row by getting Jimmy Garoppolo it looks like or you know using one of these rookie type quarterback options but I think Carson Wentz as a quarterback is stable enough and I know each of the last two places he's left there's been disdain on the way out but the good news is is that he's now going to a franchise where everyone hates each other and everyone hates themselves because it's a dirty gross place over there for the Washington racial slurs one last thing from the Colts standpoint would you say they were closer to a Super Bowl with Philip Rivers or closer to Super Bowl with Carson Wentz? Uh, I think it was basically the same team, but uh, if you were to tell me going into the playoffs last year, who is uh, the best teams in the AFC might've listed the Colts ahead of the Bengals probably wouldn't have done it. Like it probably would have been like a four or five situation, but you could have convinced me the Colts could have done exactly what the Bengals did. Basically the same team, but you would probably say that Philip Rivers did more for that team in his time with Colts, right? Yes and no, because I think the development of Jonathan Taylor made it easier. So I think the 2021 Colts were better than the 2020 Colts, but I think that had more to do with Jonathan Taylor than it did with Phillip Rivers or Carson Wentz. I I think my point with that being that I think that Jimmy Garoppolo can at least be as good as that last year of Phillip Rivers, which if you add in the development of Jonathan Taylor, like you mentioned, and you add in that level of quarterback play, I think that that makes the Colts at least a team that I could see gain out of the first round of the playoffs. That's would be my projection for them if they make this trade official with Jimmy moving on from Carson. <laughs> I think that's about where they're at. And they could compete for a Super Bowl if the, you know, the chips fall where they may. I mean, things yeah. happen in the playoffs. We obviously, like you mentioned, we saw the Bengals go to the Super Bowl. Anything can happen. And they certainly have enough elite talent on that roster to make it happen. I, I just think that they just need someone who is more reliable. And clearly that wasn't Carson Wentz. I think we should point out that we already know how the Colts season is going to end next year because they play in the AFC South, which is they're going to be the four seed. They're going to play in the wild card game on ESPN and they're going to lose in said wild card game on ESPN that no one will watch on wild card weekend because that's what the AFC South always does. They simply exist to play the first meaningless wild card game on ESPN and lose to a team that should have won their division but ended up being the five seed anyways. The Slowbuster guys are killing it. Half done. Third quarter is beginning now. All righty, Kyle. Well, we still don't have an official agreement between the MLBPA and the MLB as of this recording, but we do have a lot of news from baseball. We do have some news about potential rule changes, and we always know that baseball is the most rigid sport when it comes to changing up the rules. So hearing about these proposals, hearing that the MLB and MLBPA are on the same page about this, it's pretty exciting. Pitch clock, that's been one that's been heavily discussed, limiting the time of a game, and which you know should make for a better viewing experience. The limit 
elimination of the shift. So not allowing like one team to have nine infielders on the right side, I, I think is definitely one thing that a lot of people are in agreement and favor of. The expansion of the playoffs. Seems like we're starting to find a rounded number at 12 there. Exciting news. It sounds like we're close. I mean, I don't want to jinx it here, but it sounds like we're close on a lot of agreements. Which one of these rules really stood out to you? Hell, I didn't even mention designated hitter, universal DH. While I have heard there's been optimism towards a deal, I'm still going to hold firm that the union and the players will combust each other and decide that we're going to fight this out and delay games even more, although it looks like they are moving towards some kind of a compromise, possibly, uh, or at least for the PA to reject the original offer of the owners. Well, we'll see what happens. But uh, for the time being, I like change in general. I find it incredibly exciting. I like the idea that the world is an ever-shifting place, often for the better. It doesn't always have to be for the better, but sometimes for the better. We get smarter as we go along. We understand how the world works a little better, and then the world changes in front of us, and we all start from an even playing field. Uh, So I was never the person who was anti all these rules in baseball. I think, logically speaking, a universal DH makes sense because then it adds an extra player to rosters and everyone playing by relatively the same rules. Uh, The shift thing was it was important just from an aesthetically pleasing standpoint in baseball. It was something that's like, I I actually really liked the the compromise of you can shift, but you have to keep four players on the dirt infield at all times. And I find that super fascinating because all of the money ball analytics are changing now. Now that you've changed this one rule, everyone has to go back to the numbers and re-crunch everything about what the best positions to shift to are and things like that. And, And there's no sample size exactly to work on for exactly how to do it. We know it's going to benefit hitters more than pitchers because baseball is this weird sport where hitters and pitchers don't have the same interests aligned with each other because they're fighting for the same money. And usually the success of a batter directly leads to less success for a pitcher. So I find that part incredibly fascinating and interesting. Like I think these rule changes are fun because it's something new and unique. And I thought the extra inning runner on second rule was cool because it fixed a problem of we don't need to burn everyone out going to 18 inning games when it's a regular season one of 162 that obviously got put in so I like these ideas of rule changes the thing that I find fascinating is there was such a heavy resistance to change in baseball because baseball's audience overwhelmingly was older a wider audience than a lot of sports more middle America types in each of individual markets so there was a lot of resistance or I say more resistance to change than there is in the NBA where people are clamoring for the NBA to change the James Harden foul rule and put in a three-point line or you know what what happens in the NHL where the NHL keeps changing formats all the time and their fans are like wow this is fun and exciting when people are shooting pucks at the Bellagio fountain and we have different overtime rules and fewer skaters on the ice for overtime periods and things like that like those are things that were clamored for while baseball has overwhelmingly resisted change and it's been a fight to make baseball change Uh, so I find it interesting that they just went through all the change in one offseason they said we're just going to make all of the old timey people upset all at once and then we're just going to move on with our lives you know I don't think all of the old timey people are upset when you think about the idea of the shift I think more old timey people were upset at the shift like I'm kind of old school in a mindset and when I think about the rules of baseball and when I think about a typical baseball diamond 
the, seeing these massive shifts always kind of annoyed me. And obviously the action on the base paths, you talk about that aesthetically pleasing game. The fact that players came to the decision a couple years ago, well, you know, the best way to beat a shift, hit it out of the fucking park. And that's why we're in this three true outcome type sport of walk, strikeout, or home run. If you incentivize people to hit it on the field, move people, move runners, still bases, then that's the old school baseball vibes that we really were clamoring for. I'm not going to lie, universal DH, I'm okay with it. But, you know, that's one of those things where I'm like, man, we don't get to see Bartolo Colon hit a home run anymore, spin himself into the dirt. We don't get to see Mad Bum or Noah Syndergaard or Jason Grom or all these guys like take swings and every once in a while when a pitcher hits it, it's like the ultimate disrespect to the other pitcher. Think about that. If you're a pitcher and you allow a home run to another pitcher, don't you like just like wallow in your own sorrows for the rest of the day? It's the ultimate disrespect that anyone can do. Yeah, just just because there's a DH doesn't mean pitchers can't be DHs. I remember okay. Madison Bumgarner no, DH'd not in there. Everyone, not everyone is Shohei Otani. Although, you know, in 20 years, I see Seeing Shohei out there pitching and hitting, who knows how that's going to shift the curve on that one. You know, more players are going to be more interested in not exactly specializing. We talk about positionless basketball, talk about positionless NFL games. You know, we might start to get to that point where you start to see some more uh, duality between offensive and defensive players, pitchers and hitters come into play, especially now that we do have the universal DH taking over. As you mentioned, it does bring up some interesting factors for the National League teams now that they have to go out there and sign a DH. We'll see how many of those teams already had someone ready for that role or how many people are going to have to go out there and just acquire an expensive veteran to be able to fill that spot. I don't hate any of these roles, even the pitch clock, the pitch clock, you know, baseball has always made its money and being the timeless game, you know, the truly sport that doesn't have a clock. And I don't hate 18 inning games. I know they're hard to watch, but you know, I don't hate whenever we get an anomaly game like that. Anything that kind of like forces these little weird nuances of the game where people exit the batting box 10 times to adjust their gloves or step off the mound, play with the Raza back for 10 minutes. Yeah, we could do without it. You, you should be able to figure that out. Next big hurdle, and this hasn't been agreed on, but it's probably down the line, is of course robot umpires, you know, seeing what happens. I'm curious to see how players are going to react to it because obviously when it comes to umpires and it comes to like the strike zone, if it's in your favor, you love it. You love that the robot umpires are getting it right. If it's not, then you hate it, but at least they would cut out some of those arguments because what are you going to do? What are you going to argue? You're going to argue with the computer that's able to 3D generate a strike zone? <laughs> People do it in tennis and it's incredibly funny. It is incredibly funny when they yell at the computer screen. That's like, ah, damn it. How could that be out of bounds? That's ridiculous. Yeah, I understand yelling at Angel Hernandez or any of these other old timey umpires. Who's a, uh, give me another umpire. That this, no, this makes Joe no West, you. Right? Joe West is retired now. You've made me feel incredibly sad because we don't have any umpires. There are no new personalities of umpires in baseball now. I can't even remember. What was the name of the guy who blew the Armando Galarraga play at first base? Jim Joyce? Yes, Jim Joyce. So like we have Jim Joyce, but uh, he's not Jim he's Joyce. Not poor Jim Joyce too. Like that one play, like he was overall, like he wasn't as aggressive as aggro as some of these other umpires. Uh, people look at Jim Joyce and actually give him a lot of credit, say he's one of the better umpires, but that one call. And you know, if you're Armando Galarraga, that's your one day in the sun. That's the one game that you are going to be remembered by. You're not a Hall of Famer. You're not an all-star, but you could have been one of only 
league, like 30 pitchers mm-hmm. with a perfect game. I disagree. I disagree. Is that Armando Galarraga is now more famous because he didn't get the perfect game. We all remember his name. Oh, yeah. But the, me- the meme. I, not, not great for the non-visual name, media. I, but still. I'll ask you this question. Name me another pitcher in the last 20 years who threw a perfect game. In the last 20 years? Yeah. Well, this one's fucking easy for me, man. Matt Kane. Oh, that's right. Your Giants one. Whatever. Uh, name <laughs> another Roy, one. Did Roy Halladay have a perfect game? Roy Halladay did have one. You are correct. Also, Felix Hernandez had one. I think Felix Hernandez is still the last one. It's been a long time since there's been a perfect game. But I thought Max Scherzer, or he was what one strike away or one out away. I thought he Max was Scherzer really has had perfect game. Max Scherzer's had multiple no hitters, but I think that I don't think he had a perfect game because I'm pretty sure Felix Hernandez was the most recent perfect game and it's now i think seven years ago now but the point the point still stands is that uh in the modern in modern baseball we are resistant to change and robot umpires is the next step of that change and unfortunately fortunately or unfortunately umpires don't have the same power that they once did in influencing an outcome of a game and it's difficult for anyone to relinquish power like umpires union doesn't want to relinquish the power of being able to call balls and strikes even though it is logically there is no argument argument you can make in favor of that decision. It's just that this is an emotional decision. This is, we want to protect the power and we have the union to prevent other powerful people from taking away the power for us to call balls and strikes. It is a non-negotiable point. We we will strike if you try and take away that power from us. And so this is a, a an emotional point that I totally understand. That's the part where I'm like, I agree I like robot umpires, but I'm also pro-union. And so this is an impossible conflict to take away power. Maybe the solution is to pay umpires more. I don't know exactly what the salary of umpires are, but maybe that's part of the solution to compromise there. But I assume they probably get paid better than other sports just because obviously there's more games. But like we're learning in baseball right now, this is all a negotiation, right? In order for them to relinquish power, you offer them money as an alternative compensation. I don't know exactly what it is, but you know, that that would be the way to move forward with robot umpires that one's more so a rule change we all agree on but it's out of control i think a um you just need a, an apocalyptic moment where everyone realizes hey a public opinion has shifted 180 on this issue to like the urgency is now to make change remember the nfl had the replacement referees about a decade ago and then the fail mary happened with russell wilson the and the seahawks and like backers. right away the fact that that just happened like what was that week it, one literally it was like week three and then the next week, the NFL folded and gave the the officials everything they were they were uh, striking for. Well, here's the problem: we have had multiple of those situations. I mean, not to go on a soapbox here, but the Giants have been screwed over by a couple of these moments with uh, robot umpires or lacking robot umpires. There was the strike against your Padres in the 2020 bubble season, where obvious ball, obvious ball. No one disputes that it was a ball, and it was somehow called a strike. And everyone who's a Giants fan and we weren't expecting to make the playoffs that season granted but still like that was probably the difference between making the playoffs or not (laughs) and that that ends the game and then obviously we saw the check swing to end the game this last time did I think the Giants were going to pull off that comeback no 
But at the same time, you know, you end the game on a failed call like that. It, it's just enough to like stick in because it's the what if, who knows if that guy's got mm -hmm. a heroic extra swing in him. I, I did want to go back to our perfect game discussion though, real quick. Shout out to Dallas Braden. You know, a day after International Women's Day, he threw a perfect game on Mother's Day. Throwing out there, May 9th, 2010. Uh <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, by the way, there's a fun story about that. The night before he threw the perfect game, Dallas Braden went out with a bunch of local college kids and got absolutely shit-faced the night before he was going to start and then threw the perfect game. I, I think I've heard a story like some of the hitters who had the game thrown against them felt they kind of got screwed because obviously Mother's Day, they had to play with new bats. They had to play with the pink bats and they thought they weren't as good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and but that only increases the probability of throwing a perfect game, not necessarily changing the uh, the the way that uh, Dal the the chance of Dallas Braden throwing a perfect game there was incredible. Uh, Mark Burley also perfect game in there somewhere. Randy that Johnson, two thousand four. David Cohn before the start of the uh, new millennia, July eighteenth. David Wells, shout out David Wells. Uh, a lot of Yankees, a lot of Yankees will, on this one. Want to shout out David Wells because David Wells was my high school baseball coach for two years. So shout out to David Wells. Hey, fun uh, fact. You know, of course, yeah. Sandy Koufax. Uh, He's a dick, by the way, but David Wells is. Wow. <laughs> Calling out David Wells here. Lo love you, Boomer. Love you. He, he doesn't. Be well, he probably remembers who I am. I'm but gonna David Wells. I'm going to send this to you. And somehow, somehow, some way, he's going to go up to you in college. He's like, run laps, lead better. Come on, run laps. Yeah, he, he was a big run laps guy. That that was kind of his thing. We also got to talk to Kurt Gibson one time. He made that connection with us. So that was cool. That is my memories of two years of high school baseball is that. That's what I got for you. <laughs> See, this is the cool thing about being in California. You just have more access to stars. Being in New Mexico, we're waiting for 20 years from now when Alex Bregman is something because Cody Ross is probably like the peak of New Mexico baseball at the moment uh, brian erlacher of course is probably our best but either that's way. what i was gonna say you guys got erlacher although you you might not want to be associated with erlacher right now but yeah. you got brian erlacher depends there. on which side of the political spectrum you fall on but either way i mean i'm okay with erlacher as far as the rules though as far as baseball goes i mean is there any rule in particular you like the most most uh it's a good question. I don't know how the pitch clock is actually going to be implemented. Like, I don't know if people are actually going to enforce it or not, but we'll see yeah. how By the that way, ends we, up going. Yeah, we should mention with the pitch clock. They also set it at weird increments. Like if there is a runner on base, then you have 19 seconds to make the decision on what pitch you're going to throw and enter your windup. However, it's 14 seconds without a runner on base, which for me, I'm assuming is just to round up to 15 and 20 seconds, respectively, a second of delay time. But Odd times, it's that guy that sets the radio on 47 or Kyle Ledbetter, in other words. Well, think about it this way. If you add one second and there are roughly 150 pitches per team in a baseball game, that's 300, 300 pitches per game. That extra one second saves five full minutes of game time for a major league baseball game. So one second may not seem like a lot, but ultimately it saves five minutes per baseball game five minutes see that that's the one thing i would say is obviously baseball is doing this to make it a more aesthetically pleasing game you're always going to have the diehards regardless 
So is five minutes really going to be the difference between more mainstream appeal and just satisfying your regulars? I don't know if five minutes is necessarily that big a deal when it comes to attracting new voices, new eyes to the game. But um, if, if they believe it, you know, it's changed. It's, it's a different direction. It's a, you, at least you're doing more than just staying stagnant, which is the most I can say. Uh, I'm, like I said, I'm okay with the changes. I just, is it really going to be the difference between bringing a guy who's watched NBA, NBA, NBA his entire life to become a baseball fan all of a sudden? I don't think oh, five minutes yeah. will really be the difference for that guy. But Well, um, not only that, you're also trying to attract the people who are not sports fans at all, which is incredibly difficult in a in a universe where we now have unlimited streaming options for entertainment and unlimited <laughs> access and availability to music and marvel movies and exactly. Exactly. books baseball has now streaming access to apple tv another deal that they made so there's a lot of action going on in baseball aside from a labor agreement there's a lot of stuff going on in baseball here in this last few days uh we can only hope that we'll get to talk about our official new CBA, and we don't have to talk about missing more games, talk about 162 games not happening, talk about Jackie Robinson Day not happening, all the stuff that we want to try and avoid as baseball fans. But the game is heading, I think, in the right direction overall. And now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast. Atlanta Falcons wide receiver Calvin Ridley has been suspended at least the 2022 NFL season. Ridley has already not played since late October as he stepped away from the team, citing his mental well-being as a factor. Ridley first placing bets was discovered after a third-party agency, Genius, flagged his activity. Genius is an application employed by the NFL to monitor the activities of players on the betting sites they partner with. The NFL first began investigating in February and determined Ridley made multiple parlay bets in November. That would mean the bets occurred after Ridley was off the playing field. Ridley claims his bets were a grand total of $1,500. Kyle, do you believe Ridley deserved this punishment? Uh, morally, no. Practically, yes. So I understand why the NFL decided to make this decision is the same reason why Stephen Ross might lose his team over the $100,000 a game accusations that Brian Flores made. I'm like, really? That's, that doesn't seem like in the grand scheme of things, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But the NFL realizes that above all else, fans value the integrity of the result that they are seeing. They want to know that the results of games are not being impacted by weird gambling situations, whether it be the playoff game where the Bengals have an inadvertent whistle called and we just ignore the penalty altogether or, you know, whatever it may be, like the, the integrity of the result is something that matters a lot to fans and therefore matters a lot to the NFL because it affects their dollar values if fans learn that all of a sudden there is a fixing or there is a more entertainment type than athletic competition. So that part, I understand why the NFL did it to Calvin Ridley. Calvin Ridley does not deserve that level of a suspension given the infraction that he had. He doesn't deserve to lose $11 million for the equivalent of someone making $90,000 a year placing a $15 bet on a gigantic parlay. So no, Calvin Ridley did not deserve that suspension, but I understand why the NFL made the move. 
I heard one person on Twitter say it was like the worst bet outcome you can make. You bet $1,500 and you end up losing 10 million. Essentially that equates to Calvin Ridley financially and losing this 2022 season. And I agree with you. I, I don't want to drop the hammer on him from a moral standpoint because we all gamble or at least more of us are gambling nowadays than ever. Uh, I play fantasy football. That's probably the biggest extent of gambling I do on any given season. But I completely understand why the NFL had to make this punishment. It, it's a statement punishment. It's a statement suspension more than anything else, because if you allow the floodgates to open, then that's where the slippery slope starts to come into play. People already had their reservations about gambling, entering the sports or entering sports as a whole anyway. And you're really just validating it if you just like don't stop it where you can, if you don't just cut the head off the snake, because there are people with deeper pockets, more nefarious purposes out there in the world that can see like an opening. And we'll try and exploit it. So if you're the NFL, like the Dutch kid with the dike, you know, you just kind of have to plug the hole and make sure that just more water doesn't seep through because the more you allow it to happen, uh, the more issues like this you're going to see occur. It's like that old saying too in the NFL, you're either coaching it or allowing it to happen. You know, if you're allowing this to happen, then you're saying it's okay. And then when something bigger, when referees get involved in a scandal, when the whole team decides to tank or something, then you really, really have some bigger issues that I don't think the league could really recover from. From. I think for the NFL too, you're just looking at this. This is just like, you know, you have the whole Washington situation going on. You have the Dolphins situation going on. You have players getting arrested in Vegas. You have now this Calvin Ridley situation pop up. Those are like four issues that you just didn't want to have occur in the last two years, especially when you're trying to make all these changes, you're trying to make all these improvements of the game. And suddenly you open the door for people to question your integrity, integrity, you know, for the NFL, you know, obviously <laughs> it's a big standpoint, a big sticky point. You know, when we talk about fair competition mm-hmm. in sports and yes, the Calvin Ridley, um, may not have impacted these games, may not have done insider trading. Hell, it seems like he was making very reckless bets at that when he was doing parlays. Best way to win in betting usually is to limit your liabilities. You know, you do a multiple leg parlay, you're probably going to lose one leg of that parlay. So it doesn't seem like he was betting very like informed. Still, still, I I just, again, I, I understand why they did it find where it is because at least you're setting precedent. You're setting precedent too with this one. You need to establish, okay, if you do get caught, what happens to you? Because we talked about like when we had past issues with like domestic violence in the NFL, when you suspend Ray Rice for two games, then suddenly you're saying, okay, beating women is just a two game absence. When you're talking about potentially ruining the integrity of the game by gambling or infusing gambling in the sport, at least setting it a year seems like a fair mark for any potential future issues. Well, it's fair for the NFL and their public relations perspective, because it's easier to punish as we're learning right now. It's easier to punish players and easier to punish coaches, but it's not as easy to punish powerful owners because Stephen Ross also has a gambling scandal that's about to come up with the Miami Dolphins. And if the $15, I'm calling it a $15, like $15 for a normal person parlay is what's going to get Calvin Ridley an entire year of his career, then Stephen Ross's might actually be like precedent setting in that they might take a team away. And I don't know if it's going to escalate to that point because I don't know if the NFL wants the smoke with that situation. But I think the precedent setting is easier to do with players because as much as the NFL talks about the integrity of the game, they want the perception of integrity more than they want actual integrity for the game. There's 
no accountability if you're powerful enough, you can get away with it. The whole thing with Ray Rice was this was a bad look. Therefore, we then had to indefinitely suspend Ray Rice after the fact because people were like, how could you do two games? This person should be suspended for like a long time. And that was something that the NFL kind of polices now by kind of like wink, wink, nod, nod, not signing people. I know Josh Brown, the kicker for the Giants years ago, had a similar situation. He only got one game, but no one would sign him after he got the one game. So it's just not worth it to bring the controversy into the NFL more than just being proactive in handing down the suspension, which by the way, is the easiest thing to do because who gives a shit about Calvin Ridley's career at the top of the NFL? Like this is an easy statement for them to make in the perception of caring about integrity of results. What's interesting that I found too is that Calvin Ridley didn't seem to really fight it much. He kind of had a more resigned feeling about the suspension when you look at his tweets after it occurred. Something along the lines of, well, I guess it's another year for me to get healthy. Again, the NFL is right to suspend Calvin Ridley because you just have to at least show that this is not something that's allowable. I I don't think that players should be allowed to bet in sports. I think that that is a fair thing to say. And even if Calvin Ridley was not directly on that team, it's kind of the same way. I don't think that politicians should be allowed to bet in the stock market either. Mm -hmm. Like you have the ability inside trade. You have the ability to know if a guy has a shoulder injury or something like that. That kind of is the stuff that could have huge financial swings. Yes, we're talking about $1,500 now. But what happens when we're talking about $150,000 later? Yes, that part is why it's it's right for the NFL to make that move given the power that they have within the collective bargaining agreement, which is not like the Ray Rice situation where Roger Goodell went outside of the collective bargaining agreement to then suspend Ray Rice indefinitely. The part that's just frustrating is like the moral side of it, which is why I said like it's not right that Calvin Ridley got this, but also I understand why the NFL did it, which is a difficult compromise. The fact that Calvin Ridley is going to get more of a punishment than Deshaun Watson is incredibly insane. In a vacuum, but you know, too, also at the same point, when we look at both those crimes, we're still looking at allegations at this point with Deshaun Watson versus something that the NFL actually could prove in a court of law. They actually did prove that he was on those gambling sites. And again, I'm not saying that Deshaun Watson didn't. I mean, there's some good evidence to suggest he probably did. But at this current juncture in time, it's still allegation. Oh, I think even after it's all said and done, the NFL's not going to do a full year suspension for Deshaun Watson. I think it's probably not going to happen that way. And by the way, Deshaun Watson did miss last season, but he also got paid for all of last season. He got all of his contract last year. So that was basically like paid leave. And then he'll get a suspension after that I just assume is not he's going to be thrown out of the sport like it's possible Calvin Ridley is. Because remember, after a year, he can apply for reinstatement. It's not a guarantee that he will get reinstated. He can apply after a year for reinstatement. I don't think that he's going to get Pete Rose. Calvin Ridley's ability is going to keep him in the league. Interesting case in point when it came to to performance enhancing drugs, which is a similar thing where it's like, it's not that big of a deal, but it compromises the integrity of the sport. And so, you know, people hand down suspensions for that that are a little too harsh. OJ Mayo and Tyreek Evans got like three year suspensions from the NBA. And just recently, Tyreek Evans got reinstated. Like it took him another year to go through the reinstatement process, but eventually he did get reinstated. So it's more so just can they get away with 
the public relations of it, which the answer is yes. Not as many people are outraged about that as people think it is that Calvin Ridley bet $1,500 on a game. But like you said, it's about the precedent setting more than it is about what Calvin Ridley actually did, which is totally unfair to Calvin Ridley. I, out of all of this, I feel so bad for Calvin Ridley because Calvin Ridley was away from the team, according to what we know, for a mental health reason and he wanted to leave Atlanta, but we never got the details on it the way we got details with Ben Simmons. Like he just kind of disappeared and we didn't really ask questions after that. So like this was at a time where Calvin Ridley's probably not thinking in the forefront of his mind that this is, you know, I probably shouldn't be betting on this. It's probably something that's just happening second nature because he's having some sort of, you know, anxiety bout or, you know, his mind is in such a place where he wants to leave millions of dollars on the table to just, you know, take a mental break. So it's probably not on the forefront of his mind to think about this thing. And I think it's just an unfortunate confluence of events for Calvin Ridley that I'm sure isn't doing great things for that, whatever mental health reasons that he stepped away from the game for. Yeah. I'm going to be careful to not like drop the hammer on Calvin Ridley, given that his mental health issues were questioned this last year. But I, I do think that that is something that he could have been smarter about himself. And I think Calvin Ridley will even admit that he should have been smarter in that situation because you know what the rules are. You know how sports betting is perceived when players are involved. I, I don't think anyone alive walking the earth, if you're a player or in a sport, would even risk that given you know what Pete Rose's history is. You know Pete Rose oh, exists. Yes. Even like if you were born yesterday, you probably know who Pete Rose is in the sense of like what his sports betting issues um, did for his legacy and how he's not going to be in the Hall of Fame. We heard Pat McAfee talk about it. They literally have seminars whenever rookies are getting onboarded to tell you don't risk it. Don't fuck up. Don't go out there and potentially risk a Hall of Fame career just because you want to make a like what a couple extra bucks. Because again, $1,500, Calvin Ridley wins that eight like parlay. What is that to him? $15,000 or something? Oh, yeah. But I, I think the story there is more like, because I think Calvin Ridley was kind of like, the, the NFL informed him. He's like, hey, we're investigating you for gambling. And then he heard that. He's like, oh, that's right. I, I think Calvin Ridley wasn't like he didn't know. Like Calvin Ridley just wasn't thinking about it when it happened, which is, again, unfortunate for him. He just makes a mistake and he's not going to get a second chance. Uh, it's just an unfortunate situation for him. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you're not forgiven enough for ignorance. Sometimes, you know, you could be ignorant in a moment and it ends up costing you. He may have just been ignorant in that moment to the consequences of betting. Sometimes it happens and sometimes, you know, unfortunately we pay in consequences for our ignorance. You know, I, I don't even know if I'm calling it ignorance on this. One. I think it was a mistake because he only bet the one time. This wasn't like he was consistently doing it after the fact. I think he's like someone told him, hey, you can't do that. He's like, oh, wait, wait, snap. I, 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 I forgot thought he made that. multiple late parlays. So one have been. Oh, bets. he did. But it was in the same time period of November of 2021. So it was like within a week he signed up for an account and placed a few bets. Like, again, I think, I'm not calling him ignorant. Yeah. I'm saying in that moment, he had just a slight moment of ignorance, which you could call it a mistake. You know, it happens to us all. You know, we just aren't thinking a situation through. Maybe we had just one too many mimosas at brunch and, you know, we're not thinking about things through, you know, we're maybe a little bit ignorant in that moment after we leave the table, you know, stuff, stuff yeah, happens. Of course. You know? And it's, um, and it's compounded with the mental health situation that Calvin Ridley, we, we know about, but we don't really know about, but he also like walked away from $6 million because he was in a poor headspace. So like that's compounding all of this stuff. Yeah. And you know, that I, 
I, I just don't know what to think about it. I mean, mental health is just something so hard to evaluate. It's hard for me to tell who's using it as a cop out anymore because, you know, Aaron Rodgers too was talking about mental health. That I, I think Aaron, Calvin Ridley is a little bit more real just based off when, when you read his statement, it sounds a little bit more real, but I, I can never know for sure. No one can know for sure because unfortunately we're just not in that room. And I mean, the Falcons deemed that it was a real enough issue that they allowed him to step away and, you know, still make his money. So I, I'm going to just defer to that when I think about his mental health issues being like a legitimate thing. Oh, but also this isn't a massive infraction though. Like this is not something where he's like, we're talking about Antonio Brown beating up truck drivers, like yeah, mental yeah. health no, situation. No, this like, is a smaller thing in that way. I, just again, like, I, I think yeah. he's going to get forgiven by the league. He's going to get forgiven by some team that still sees a player in his 20s, prime of his career, can really help their team win a Super Bowl, whether that's the Falcons, whether that's some other franchise. There's going to be a team that has a role for Calvin Ridley uh, when he gets back from this. I mean, the Falcons were going to embrace him with open arms when he came back from his mental health vacation. Either way, you just add in this, I, I think they'll be fine. There's players that obviously have done worse. We're kind of more or less establishing what that bar is, like how far you can go. I mean, Michael Vick went to jail for killing dogs. You know, I can manage to get back in the league. When I look at the optics of this, like grand scheme of things, 1500 bucks. Okay. You deserve to be punished for it. You don't deserve to have your career ended for it. Scaling the punishment, I, I think that's about fair. We'll see. Maybe when, you know, a bigger scandal comes down the line, when we find out multiple players, undercover or, operations. Or working how about mob, a, you know, how about a bigger scandal of an owner possibly yeah. being involved in this somehow, like there is right now in investigating. Yeah, we find about secret backdoor deals, cabals, all this stuff, working with the mafiosos and all that. Maybe that might be a bigger thing that comes down the line. And then we'll have to establish what that looks like. But that's for the league to figure out. I think it's a fair punishment right now. I hope Calvin Ridley comes back from this stronger. And no one's in the right. It's just no, kind of the situation. No one's in the right. It, it, yeah, no one's in the right. It, it just kind of is what it is. And yeah, the NFL has to set the precedent. Now it'll be interesting to see if they set that precedent with Stephen Ross. In, in the NHL, they actually made the same move where Evander Kane's wife snitched on him in a bad divorce about him betting on games. And uh, I believe he got suspended for a season or indefinitely or something like that. So uh, this, is, this, this situation is more likely in sports that have less... Uh, financial impact, like a soccer player who's making $70,000 a year might need to throw games for $50,000. It's uh, it's all a matter of perspective on that stuff. I, I don't think this is going to be a big deal. And also, personally, I'm not that outraged. I know the integrity of the result matters, but there's always a fine line between entertainment and athletic competition. This was the same thing that was being argued in the Astros scandal. I'm not that outraged that Calvin Ridley placed a bet on or against the Atlanta Falcons out of, at, at a time where he was away from the team. They probably deserve some suspension but probably not a longer suspension in the macro than what Deshaun Watson is going to get. But that's more ideal than an article. I understand why the NFL did it. You learned with us. You laughed with, you us. Laughed with us. Now it's time to do some deep thinking. Hashtag bust the slump with your weekly words of wisdom. Originally, when I was thinking about words of wisdom for this week, I wanted to go in the direction of bet on yourself. But given what's going on with Kelvin Ridley, I thought talking about betting was probably not the most appropriate direction to go with. So I instead wanted to go with this one by Lao Tzu, the Eastern philosopher. If you're depressed, you're living in the past. If you're anxious, you're living in the future. If you are at peace, you're living in the present. I think, you know, sometimes, you know, we're, we're, we look too far ahead or we focus too much on our past and we don't really take the time to smell the roses, really appreciate life. 
sure, like, you know, the, the future can always get better. We're just trying to get progressively better as a society as we go. But sometimes it, it doesn't hurt to just appreciate now, appreciate what we're doing right now. Even in these crazy times we're living in, there are still some things to just appreciate in life. So, you know, embrace the present, guys. Embrace what you have because, you know, it could be gone tomorrow. Right now, there's some things that are going on in your life to be appreciative for. Yeah, I like this idea. I like the idea of wanting to be grounded in where you are right now, because looking back at the past is going to make you incredibly sad. And hopefully you're living in the best possible time you can. It might not be the greatest possible time you can, but for all of our sakes, this might be the best possible time to ever be alive in the history of mankind. The anxiety part about the future, very much touching close to home, but I've gotten better at that. It's been easy to not focus on the past for myself, but working through the future stuff, because I I have an incredibly wonderful life going right now, and it's going to get more wonderful in the future. Like we talked about earlier, change is inevitable. There's no reason to be scared of it. Guys, we're hoping that you have a great future. We're hoping you're having a great present, and we hope that you presently choose to hit that subscribe button for the Slump Buster Podcast. Leave a like on this video. <laughs> leave a five-star review. Check out our IG at Slump Buster Podcast. Check out our Twitter at Slump Buster Pod. Check us out on TikTok at Slump Buster Pod there as well. From Juju Talk Sports, from Kyle Ledbetter, stay safe, happy, and healthy. We will see you next time.